Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on AM 1380 at 3 o'clock p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'll be your host for the next half hour. Now, the show we have for you uh, today is, is quite interesting because usually I'm talking with people that I agree with on fi- quite a few different things. But today I'm, I'm speaking with somebody I disagree with on almost everything. Now, you might remember that uh, a few weeks ago we spoke with Oz Guinness, who's a, a brilliant Christian writer and scholar. And he talked about uh, growing up or, or going to, I should say, Labrie in Switzerland in the early 1970s, Labrie being this Christian community. Uh, that was hosted by Dr. Francis Schaeffer, uh, a Christian theologian who helped to found the pro-life movement in the United States, but also just helped Christians figure out how they should be interacting with the culture at large. He wrote books like A Christian Manifesto, How Now Then Shall We Live? He produced a series of documentaries with Dr. Everett C. Koop, who would later be the Surgeon General for Ronald Reagan, called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, on the threats to human life that were coming about in this new culture. And Oz Guinness was actually uh, the best man at the wedding of our next guest, Frank Schaefer. But the two don't speak anymore, because Frank Schaefer, the only son of Francis Schaefer, has become very decidedly opposed to virtually everything uh, that his father ever stood for. He does still claim to be a Christian, but a quote-unquote progressive one, uh, which essentially means that while he adopts a tone of spirituality, he disagrees with Christians on every major social issue, uh, that his father would have addressed. And just to give you an example of, of how far Frank Schaefer has strayed from the legacy of Francis Schaefer and how willing he is to repudiate it, I'd like to play you this clip from an interview he did with Rachel Maddow on MSNBC in which he referred to Christians uh, as the village idiots of the United States. This subculture has as its fundamentalist faith that they distrust facts per se. They believe in a young earth, 6,000 years old, with dinosaurs cavorting with human beings. They think that whether it's economic news or news from the Middle East, it all has to do with the end of time and Christ's return. This is la-la land, and the Republican Party is totally enthralled to this subculture to the extent that there is no Republican Party. There is a fundamentalist subculture which has become a cult. It's fed red meat by buffoons like Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, and other people who are just not terribly bright themselves and they are talking to even stupider people. That's where we're at. That's where all this is coming from. And it's becoming circular. It's becoming a joke, unfortunately a dangerous joke, because once in a while one of these Looney Tunes, as we see, brings guns to public meetings. Who knows what they do next? It's a serious thing we all have to face, but the Democrats and sane Americans just have to move past these people, say, go wait in the hilltop for the end. The rest of us are going to get on with rebuilding our country. Now, as you can see, uh, Frank Schaefer speaks about Christians with the utmost contempt. Now, I didn't find that in my conversation with him. Uh, He didn't really talk about Christians with the same level of contempt that he does when he's speaking uh, to other atheists or other left-wing people or other people who despise the religious right as much as he now clearly does. And it was actually this summer when I first read his book, uh, Crazy for God, where he talks about 
uh, the legacy of his parents. And I, I found the book uh, quite disturbing. I read a lot of reviews of it to find out you know, what was true and what wasn't. And, and Oz Guinness will say that uh, while parts of it are true, many parts of it uh, are not, and that Frank Schaefer should not just be taken at his word. But of course, this is a memoir, and memory is what it is. But what I what I found a little bit disturbing was just the the absolute and and pervasive cynicism that went straight through the whole book, and it's kind of interesting because I I think that any of us um, who write could write a book like this uh, in terms of the tone uh, if we took uh, you know a family that we love or a group of friends that we love and we wrote about every interaction with them with the most scathing sarcasm, uh, you know and that sort of darkest approach that's what you would get. Um, this this book, Crazy for God, is very well written. Um, he does sarcasm and cynicism very well. He does descriptions very well. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of Christian publications refused to review it when it came out uh, was that it's simply too readable. And it's uh, what Oz Guinness uh, basically referred to as, as the biggest smear job on Francis and Edith Schaefer ever written and written by their son. Um, um, who does say in the book many times that he loves them very much and, and stipulates as such in the interview that I have with him. So Frank Schaefer is a very, very, he's a very interesting fellow. Uh, both his father and his mother have since passed away, but the legacy of the Schaefers and Labrie uh, does uh, carry on, and there are many people in the pro-life movement who very clearly remember seeing documentaries like Whatever Happened to the Human Race and remember being inspired by uh, Francis, uh, Francis Schaefer's calls to engage with the culture. So I was very pleased that uh, Frank Schaefer agreed to talk to me, and uh, I hope you'll find the conversation as interesting as I did. Now, I've been following your work for quite some time, uh, both your writing and, and to some degree, actually, as, as you've been more public about it on social media, your art. And uh, yeah. that sort of leads me back into you know the very first question where a lot of this began is, is the community of Labrie in Switzerland, you've talked about it as a place that was very focused on art in the first place. Right. What was that like? You, you've talked quite extensively, both in your writings and in other interviews, about how art-focused Labrie was from music and paintings and across the board. Yeah, the way I would put it is that Labrie was art-focused because my father and my mother were genuinely art lovers. And when I say that, I'm talking about music, I'm talking about paintings, things that you find in museums, and then just the making of art. So because of their attitude towards art and artists, the brief fellowship in Switzerland in the 1960s in particular and into the early 70s used to attract quite a few evangelicals but also non-Christians who were interested in not just art but in the discussions on art that would take place with my dad. So, for instance, he talked a lot about the Renaissance and the contrast with Reformation art more than Europe and so on. So that was the environment I grew up in. And when I started painting in my early teens, Dad gave me the living room as my studio, and they provided me with art materials. They were very supportive. And then, of course, at Labrie Fellowship, every summer they also had an arts festival where they would be poetry, music, painting, often the movies of people like Igmar Bergman or Federico Fellini, the important European filmmakers maybe would be screened at a local theater. The students would go up and then come back for a discussion. And so it was a very art-friendly atmosphere, and I may add, very, very different than most North American evangelical expressions of Christianity, which tended to ignore the arts. So right. Dad really stood for his support of that. 
Right, and that, and that would certainly be a difference in terms of, uh, of North American Christianity in general seems to have adopted a very consumer attitude, which is why a lot of the praise music sounds a lot like sort of corporate worship, I believe they call it, and it's a good word for it because it's sort of produced in the same way other pop songs are produced. Right, exactly. And essentially the kind of art and music that was played at Brie was, you know, the serious stuff. I mean, I'm watching this Netflix documentary on Nina Simone. Okay, well, you know, I grew up knowing, knowing about her. Uh-huh. My sister was a big fan and went down to the Montreux Jazz Festival and took some students with her at various Simone conferences and, and, and uh, uh, concerts, rather. So, you know, it was not a, in any way focused on, on the Christian or religious community. We're just talking, you know, big-time art here. Nina Simone, Miles Davis, on one end, you know, Bach and and Botticelli and Rembrandt at the other end. It was a very wide spectrum, but in no way had anything to do with North American evangelicalism. Uh-huh. Well, like, tell us a bit about Labrie in terms of how did this become a thing? Uh, you've written quite extensively about Labrie, of course. Many other people have as well. It's, it's sort of a phenomenon, but how did right. it, how did it happen? It, it seems like the description that you, you give is to some degree almost like a sort of Christian commune, but everyone from Timothy yeah, Leary is. to mean, former drug addicts. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it went to an evolution. If, if anyone who's read my memoir, Crazy for God, which, by the way, has a subtitle which pulls a lot of people in, how I grew up as one of the elect helped found the religious right and lived to take all or almost all of it back, or my new book, you know, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, uh, how, how to uh, Create Beauty, Give Love, and Find Peace. The themes of those books are set back in the Libri community to the extent that into their 1960s and the early 70s, Labrie really could have been described as a kind of a religious hippie commune back in the day when the Jesus movement was coming forward and all the rest. And then through a series of coincidences, really, that had nothing to do with any choice, but just like everything in life, you know, you look back and see it more clearly in hindsight. Dad took a stand on Roe v. Wade against abortion and the legalization of it in his film series that I wrote and directed called Whatever Happened to the Human Race. Uh-huh. And after that, he became known as a leader and founder of the religious right. But if you had visited Debris, let's say in 1968, you would have thought, first of all, that Francis Schaeffer was of the left, not of the right. Right. Because he was talking about the environment, he was talking about the arts, he was talking about racism, he was talking about bourgeois white American culture, and that he agreed with the hippies and liked the lyrics of Jimi Hendrix's songs because they were rebelling against, you know, a white-dominated middle-class culture that he thought had lost the flavor of the gospel. If you tune back in with Francis Schaeffer now, he was kind of kidnapped by the religious right because of his stand on abortion, which was really the only issue that he took that they identify with. All of a sudden, in hindsight, they'd made him one of their people. But if you visited the Brie, it was, you know, let me just put it this way in shorthand for people who understand. Uh-huh. It was about as far away from Jerry Falwell's Liberty Baptist College with all its rules and regulations as you could get. So, you know, Dad really, I think, um, has kind of left a legacy that's, that seems to contradict itself. On one end, you've got this kind of affiliation with the religious right, but in terms of actually the Brie, if you would come to that ministry when it was its heyday, you never would have thought you were in a right-wing, let alone fundamentalist Christian organization. 
Right, and to some degree, the way you've described it, you know, um, you know, like drug addicts crashing there to get clean for a year and doing, uh, and, and you know, and working and just enjoying the community. It almost sounds like right. sort of a reformed evangelical, you know, Calcutta with with Francis Schaeffer as Mother Teresa. Yeah, I mean that's a stretch in the Mother Teresa thing, and I'm not saying that, but yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, all comers were welcome. Look, I'll give you an example, and uh, I forget the year, but you remember who Timothy Leary was, the father yes. of sort of LSD. Well, you know, Timothy Leary came to the Green Stage three days because he found Dad's work very interesting. He wanted to talk to him. We had, you know, numerous people involved in the British rock and roll business. For instance, one of my first paying jobs as a teenager was I helped with the light show for the Led Zeppelin at the Montreux Jazz Festival, which was starting to incorporate rock at that time. And, you know, I met Jimmy Page, and, and of course, I was just like with the road crew, didn't know who I was. But he had a paperback copy of my dad's first book, Escape from Reason, that had just been published in England. And uh, and I told him, I said, hey, you're, you know, you're reading my dad's book. And he says, oh, yeah, very cool, man. Eric Clapton gave it to me last week. I was reading it on the plane. So the, the, the kind of people in 68, 70, up to 1970 who were interested in dad's work, yes, there were evangelicals from America coming over to see how dad was, quote, unquote, reaching the young people. But the actual people at the Brie were a huge mixture of Americans, British, European, uh, some from evangelical backgrounds with questions, and a lot from secular backgrounds that uh-huh. just heard this was the interesting commune. And you've got to remember the flavor of the moment. This is when the Beatles were heading to India to sit at the feet of the Maharishi. So there was a lot of spiritual guruism happening. And, uh, and Dad uh, had an open-door policy. People could stay for free for up to 10 days. A lot of people just came because they heard it was a good place to crash. You could unpack your bedroll and sleeping bag, sleep on a chalet balcony, get fed, do a little work in the garden. Some stayed, some left. But, again, it was very unorganized and open at that time and completely different than any kind of institutional retreat somebody might think of today. Right now, this is this is sort of interesting because uh, during the '60s, '70s, '80s, right, the religious right began to form, but the conservative movement overall began to form. And now, if if I look at it today and look at a lot of the books uh, that are that have come out, say, in the last uh, you know decade, 15 years, uh, there's Frank Schaefer, Christopher Buckley, Ron Reagan Jr. All of them have published memoirs essentially to some degree or another repudiating their childhood, right? And you've got Francis Schaeffer, William F. Buckley, Ronald Reagan, three of the most easily recognizable names in the rise of the modern conservative movement. Why do you think the sons have differentiated so much from the fathers, and and so loudly, to be honest? Well, I think it's a good point. Um, You know, and I wouldn't equate my work exactly with theirs. The first thing I just want to do to put my own memoir in context and then remind me to get back to your question, because I think it's a great one. I'd like to figure it out myself, so we'll talk about this. But let me just first note in my memoir, I, you know, I have over a dozen books in print. So the first thing I want to say is I write professionally. I earn my living and have since the publication of my Uh first novel, Portino. Saving Grandma in Vermont, which was a trilogy about a, an evangelical family in Europe, and non, it was fiction, not nonfiction. And many other books I've written, including a, a memoir about my son's time in the Marine Corps and what it was like to be a Marine father with a son in combat, and that's a program, book that I was interviewed by Oprah for and became a New York Times bestseller. And the reason I want to note this is that it's not like one day I woke up in my mid-50s and said, I want to write a tell-all book about my my family. So to my knowledge, you know, uh, Ron Reagan and, and some of those folks, they've written a memoir as in to get something off their chest, but they, they don't earn their living as writers. 
I always fold my life into my books. I wouldn't know how to do anything differently. So when my son was in the Marine Corps, I wrote a book about that. When uh-huh. I, when I, you know, I'm interested in art, and I've written about that. I, you know, so I, I just want to say, it's not like I pulled this out of thin air and said, I've got to address this like it was a burning desire just to talk about this. It's just simply the next book where and I have used my life as mine. Right. Now, having that, I think to get back to your question, which is a great one, I think one of the reasons why people like me have moved away is for two, two reasons. First of all, obviously, as you get older, if you've grown up in a family with a powerful person as a father, you're going to be folded into that family or the God business, uh-huh. in my case, you know, kind of nepotistic sidekick for a while maybe, but later you're going to think about it in terms of what you believe yourself and what you want to do with your life. I think that's a natural progression. But I think in the case of my father, too, uh, I wanted to set the record straight because I don't think it's fair that he has been labeled as the leader of the religious right. And anybody who's read Crazy for God, who's not from an evangelical background, where they're looking at him as a kind of a hero to their evangelical faith, so they might be upset with me on that ground. I think anybody who just reads Crazy Forgotten, the memoir, or my new book, uh, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, will very quickly realize that not only did I love my father, uh, I write about him very, very fondly, but I also write about him as a real person. Right. And one of the, re- one of the reasons I've written the book is because I think my dad right now would be so disenchanted with the direction of the religious right and, say, the Tea Party and the anti-Obama rhetoric that's gone on and this incredible cycle of kind of uh, hate and uh, vitriol towards the gay community that he was always very accepting of. That, right. You know, that self would be writing books saying, hey, whatever this has become, please don't identify me with it. So in my case, I don't think I've just moved on. I don't think the religious right as it evolved represents who my father was at all. Right, but, but since you've said that your father would be displeased with, with a number of things in, in the religious right, I think, I think it's fair to ask this question, because your book, Crazy for God, is extremely open. Uh, to the point of, of of reading a bit like a tabloid at times, where you talk about you know hearing your parents fight and why they traveled together yeah, so yeah, often right, and things right. like that. Like, don't you think right. there's some uh, there's almost a bit of a patricidal betrayal when you take details from from inside the intimate home where there's a certain level of trust that's just yeah. assumed, and you publish them for everyone to read? I'm, I'm sure you'd agree they wouldn't be happy with that. Well, I think people who kind of look at my dad as someone they look up to as a you know kind of a guru or a prophetic figure might not be. On the other hand, I don't think it's unusual for a writer to fold the experiences of their own life into a book. And so, you know, people say, well, why did you write that book in particular? And I can be very honest and say, hey, listen, I'm a writer, and if my dad had been a steel worker in Gary, Indiana, and I had watched the decline of the steel mills, and I was setting either a novel or a nonfiction memoir there, if he came home at night and hit my mother or after he lost his job, crashed the family car, that's part of the story. So, you know, it's a great liability having a writer in the family who's a serious writer because they are going to fold your story into their work. Right. And I certainly am unique in that sense. You can talk to, you know, you can, you can Google and you will find hundreds, if not thousands of instances where family members, other people complain bitterly that they've been folded into books this is the you know this is the business we're in. So, I, hey, but I that's that's a, that's a little bit dodging the question because that's sort of saying, well, my, my the real question is real simple: is it true? And if something mm-hmm. is true and actually is 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 uh, sheds light on a period of history or a personality, 
you know, I think it's very important that people, for instance, who follow these these prophetic figures, right. whether it's Billy Graham, whether it's my dad, whether it's Pat Robertson, whether it's Barack Obama, I'm not talking right or left. It's very important. Everybody understands that these are human beings and they have feet of clay because there's nothing worse than this kind of prophetic worshipfulness of leaders in a religious cause somehow pretending they're not people. I think it sends a message which tells other people, look, these guys were either perfect or special. They're not. So I guess more the point I would be making, because when I read, I guess, oh, Christopher Buckley wrote a, a memoir about his parents recently. It's brilliantly written. Right. Uh, Crazy for God is extremely well written, too. That's thank one you, of, thank th- you. For those, for those who are the followers of these books, that's one of the reasons that they'll be so problematic is because they are quite readable. But I was thinking, for example, you know, I'm, I'm a son. I'm, you know, I'm inside my family. Families are, are right. sort of exposed to uh, very private details. How would you feel about one of your children writing a book about everything you've ever done. As you say, we're all just people, but yeah. to what degree do you want your your failings, your faults, uh, the things that you're the most ashamed of and the least proud of broadcasted on the New York Times bestseller list? Well, this may sound odd, okay? I bet that you're just going to have to take it from me that I'm telling you the truth. You know, my, my commitment to my own writing and my own art is such that if my children, a musician, wrote a song or if somebody wrote a book or, you know, made a movie script, you know, if it was good, um, and and they were telling the truth, I would say, let the chips fall where they may. I, don't, I wouldn't have any embarrassment about it because I'm not someone trying to sell a puppet persona of, of personal rectitude. So my first question would be, hey, you know, am I proud of this kid's work? I would much rather have them uh, write about the fights that I had with Jeannie, slapping my daughter Jessica when she was a little girl because I was a teenage father that got my my wife pregnant when we were 17 and 18, uh-huh. you know, all of that. I, I, I would love that to be in a book if it was a good book. If, if, I had, if it was a crappy book and painted a nice picture of me, I'd be ashamed of my child and say, why are you publishing crap? But if it was true and uh, my daughter wants to write a book about how I slapped her as a child because I inherited that temper and my, my Reformed theology told me I was the head of the home and I had the right to discipline and spare the rock, I talk about it all the time. In fact, there's nothing they could write that I haven't publicly talked about in my own book about myself and continue to do so in my talks because I don't think you help people unless you level with them about your own problems. Right. And this is sort of interesting because you've obviously repudiated parts of your father's legacy but not others because you do talk about him very fondly in, in many different parts. Um, when you talk about Labrie, it usually does come across more as a, as a defensive Labrie rather than a condemnation of it. But right. one of the topics that you've written most frequently on on, 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 on outlets such as Salon.com and so on and so forth is the abortion issue, which right. I find interesting. Like taking the abortion issue outside the context of the pro-life movement and separating it for a moment right. from the people who advocate for it, um, you've condemned certain segments of the pro-life uh, movement. And, and, you know, just as with the civil right. rights movement, we've got MLK and Malcolm X, so we do see some people uh, doing violent right. things. But why specifically the, uh, the action of abortion, the issue of abortion of itself? What made you flip on that issue? Because you would consider yourself well, a choice now, would you not? Yeah, I, I'll give you a straight answer on that. But I would just say for anybody listening who's interested in me trying to wrestle with this issue, first of all, I've got some in Crazy for God. But I wrote a whole book, which basically has got a middle section on nothing but this, called uh-huh. Sex, Mom, and God, where I really tried to look at my own progression. So I'm one of these people that uh, has definitely changed my point of view when it comes to the legality of abortion. When it comes to the actual act of abortion, I'm someone who also... Uh, looks at it with a lot of ambivalence and 
and many, many questions. And so, you know, when you read what I actually write about it, I guess where my position has changed is this. You know, I used to think back in the religious right days that the, the thing we needed to do was to, to roll back Roe v. Wade and make abortion illegal. I don't think that anymore. On the other hand, I also think that the problem of the pro-life ethic as unapplied to the entire society helps create the kind of situation where a lot of people seek abortions. And I'll give you an example. I mean, you know, we're here we are in North America, you're in Canada. Here in the U.S., it's a big deal to get any government assistance for health care. And one of the prime indicators of people who have abortions are people in the lower economic status, can't afford, afford proper medical care, yet the same right-wing Tea Party, pro-life, whatever you want to put it, community that wants to outlaw abortion does not want a single-payer health care system in America that would actually care for and provide the kind of prenatal care and or daycare and all these other social services. So the thing is, if someone would come along with a, a pro-life platform that included a stand against abortion, not the illegality of it, but the stand on moral issues, but at the same time offered real alternatives, uh, using the power of the state to not just encourage people to not have abortions, but also to encourage them to actually have children and help people, then that would be a very different thing. The problem with the pro-life movement is also tied in with the pro-business, anti-government assistance, anti-safety net agenda, and it's all been folded into one package, which I find extremely ugly. So my, my views have changed on Roe v. Wade, but my views on providing a pro-life platform, as it were, that really helps people on all fronts has not changed. And I would like to see a place where, where whether, it's, whether it's leave after pregnancy for men and women, whether it's health care, whether it is child care, we actually provide a pro-life agenda where it is easy and, and, and so forth to have kids. You know, right now, my own life is completely bound up in this again. I've got five grandchildren as well as three grown kids. Three of my five grandchildren live across the street, Lucy, Jack, and Nora, ages seven, five, and 18 months. Jeannie and I divide our time between childcare every day and, and working me on my writing and painting, Jeannie on some publishing stuff. We're probably working nine, 10 hours a day between the two of us taking care of these babies. We are doing that because I want to help my son, but we're also doing that because that's where our greatest interest is. That's where our greatest love is. I would love to see that as a motivator for everything from grandparents staying near children to help them with children uh -huh. to us fighting for a single-payer health care system that provides life and care for women, not just prevent people from having abortions and then kiss them off and say, hey, you're on your own. Right, so, but that's, you know, that, that, is, that's more talking about the government response. Right? That's more talking about the yeah. government response to the issue, which is why I like to extricate it for a minute, because we can have plenty of problems with the ways that people respond and have a problem with people's inconsistency in how they respond to an issue. And, you know, then we, right. we, can, sometimes, we can sometimes see hypocrisy. We can sometimes say, why are you against this but right. uh, for this? But, you know, you, you were there in the beginning days of the pro-life movement. You saw, you know, the photos right. of the babies who were, who were sort of dismembered. You saw uh, the right. Dr. Bernard Nathanson's silent scream video. Taken apart sure. from the pro-life movement, when you look at abortion and you recognize that it does end the life of a human being, doesn't that give you pause and doesn't that allow you to say, well, this issue, if you think the pro-life movement in, in, in the U.S., especially back then, was doing such a terrible job, should be extricated from those people and that, that this is a cause the left should take for their own? Because equality, equality make, of I humans make, is... is yeah, no, no, I think you make a very good... I think you make a very good point. I think there's an excellent argument to be made exactly that you've begun here with what you've just said. 
unfortunately, that's not the the United States version of the pro-life movement and, and what's happened with it. And instead, what happened here is that the pro-life agenda simply served American corporate interests like the Koch brothers by mobilizing lower middle class voters to vote against their own economic interests and support Republican candidates who want to make the rich richer. And since you can't get them to vote on that basis, you gin them up on anything from anti-gay agendas to pro-life to whatever it may be so that you get them voting on the social issues when, uh, when really the agenda has always been the economic issues for the right in terms of, you know, who actually gets elected and what they do here. So I, I totally buy what you're saying. And you know what? There's a big chunk of me that is very ambivalent about this and still very conflicted about it. And so when you come forward with your proposition there that you just made, that's very similar to what I wrote about in Sex, Mom, and God, where I have one chapter talking about why I no longer think that Roe v. Wade should be reversed, and another chapter absolutely blasting the pro-abortion people in this country who, this country being the United States, who uh-huh. pretend like nothing's going on and keep sweeping these power stories under the rug. And basically I'm saying, we, you know, we need a real dialogue about the real issues here that have nothing to do with the Republican Party or the pro-abortion folks who keep pretending that this is just a little piece of fetal tissue that doesn't matter. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty frank about my ambivalence on it, and I throw it out there uh, in ways that, you know, I, that book was attacked by a, a whole bunch of feminist bloggers who said, you know, I'm not really pro-choice because, look, here, I'm, I'm not consistent. And then, of course, on the other side, the same thing from the right. So I'm one of those people who really, when I say I'm conflicted and ambivalent, I'm conflicted and ambivalent. I'm not pretending it otherwise. I'll leave you with one final question, and thank you so much for taking the time. And now one final question sure, would be, you've written so much about your family, um, you know, about, about your life growing up, about your life now. If you were to leave uh, listeners how, with, with, with sort of one view of your father, one memory, one experience, one story, uh, one description, what would that be? Well, I'll do it a slightly different way. You know, every day I take care of Lucy, Jack, and Nora. When I put on a piece of classical music and I sit them down with pens and pencils instead of an iPad and have reorganized my life around those children, what they don't understand is that's the legacy of my father and mother. Mm. They, were compa- they were compassionate people who really believed and doing what you said, and the fact that, you know, I, I grew up in a home like that uh, means that, you know, what my grandchildren meet my dad every time they see an open art book on the table instead of another piece of expressions from the Disney Corporation. And what they don't understand is that, you know, my father's legacy is a commitment to, to an idea of beauty in life that does not need justification and has intrinsic worth. And so I would just say what my dad's real legacy is standing up to the intrinsic worth of beauty in both human relationships and art and creativity. And for that matter, the way he lived at the practice of the gospel with an open home and really caring for the stranger. You know, this is his real legacy. Well, Frank, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Hey, you know what? You're, I, I wish every interview I did had questions that were this good and thoughtful. You know, you, you, you really do inspire somebody to think hard when you ask real questions. So thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Frank Schaefer, New York Times bestselling author and the son of Edith and Francis Schaefer, just talking a little bit about his memoirs and his parents and, and, and how he sees the world. Uh, I, was very, I was very happy that he, he agreed to come on the bridgehead, and uh, I think the discussion was very, very indicative, and I, and I was quite pleased in talking to him to discover that uh, he was more than willing to stop and think when confronted with a point 
uh, that he hadn't considered before. So I'll be actually talking to a number of other people who are involved with Labrie in the months to come. And so I hope I can give our, our listeners a bit fuller of a picture of, uh, of the history of the pro-life movement, the rise of the pro-life movement, uh, and, and the many figures that made up uh, the history uh, of, of the, Christian, the uh, Christian culture across the United States and Canada. So thank you again so much for joining us today, and we hope we'll see you again next week.